From BYU Broadcasting's Performance Studio, this is Highway 89. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. Our guest today in studio is Norman Krieger, pianist and since 2016, appointed professor of the piano at the Jacobs School of Music at Indiana University in Bloomington, a very prestigious appointment. Of course, many, many other credits to his name, and I think it's only Antarctica where you have not performed. <laughs> so you're in town right now with the Gina Bachauer International Piano Foundation. We're going to be hearing some Beethoven in just a few minutes. We're so thrilled to talk with you. Norman Krieger, thank you for coming. Well, thank you for having me. It's a privilege to be here. I will say to our listening audience, Mr. Krieger might have been doomed to being a musician. His father, though he was a dentist, also played the violin. His uncle played seven or eight different instruments, and his mother studied piano when she was young. Mr. Krieger began with the violin, but it did not work out since a particular member of the family always ran to hide as soon as the violin case was opened. And I have to ask, who is that family member? Oh, my gosh. That was our German shepherd, Rex, <laughs> who I love very dearly. But he was blessed with, you know, long-term wisdom. And, uh, uh, yeah. So once you began playing the piano, did, the, did Rex take any better to the piano? He then? did, actually. He used to sit under the piano um, as opposed to hiding under a couch. Okay, uh, we'll take that as a yeah. sign from the, the heavens, if yes, not absolutely. from the dog. Absolutely. <laughs> well, we think this Beethoven might be something even a German shepherd can appreciate we're going to be hearing. But I wanted to start by asking you about, uh, I love this quote we found, 99% of the repertoire written for the piano by the great composers of the last few hundred years is inspired by things that have nothing to do with the piano. Literature, politics, works of visual art, religion, poetry. So sometimes you can become too specialized in your work. Yes, that's so true. And, and so you, you talk about taking work and preparing uh, by going to see Mussorgsky's pictures at an exhibition. To, to What are you suggesting that you actually look at the pictures? Well, I think that music... You know, the great composers, especially from Bach forward, they, I mean, of course, Bach wrote music that was written for the church, and but he also wrote a lot of keyboard music and string music, wind music, that celebrated the instruments. And so there's a sort of dual relationship here, in my, in my opinion, which is the evolution, in my case, of the piano, from the Baroque period to the classical period to the Romantic period, and all of the interesting discoveries that happened during that time, you know, with the Age of Enlightenment, you had Haydn um, in London attending a venue of experiments by scientists, you know, and people would uh, experiment with different chemicals and explosions, and people would pay, you know, a high guinea to witness this. So that's one aspect. I mean, the other is, of course, literature and nature. I mean, in Beethoven, for example, you hear the mode of transportation of the day, which was carriage. And so the last movement, for example, of the Sonata, the Tempest that I'm playing, is, is a perpetual motion that could be envisioned as a hooded horseman at twilight, something like that. Or So you didn't have to go just stand out in a storm. No, <laughs> no, no. And actually the title, of course, was not given by Beethoven. Yes. And, um, his student Schindler, I think, asked him, what inspired you to write this work? And he said, read Shakespeare's Tempest. And that's all he said. Mm. So... Um, the publishers, of course, latched onto that and 
gave names to many of his sonatas, which Beethoven never did. You talked about the evolution of music and uh, Haydn going to see this technological display. You've also spoken uh, in some research we've done that was so interesting about the technology that students today use, that they have this instant feedback with right. video, or they can find almost any performance That's online. True. That's Do, true. Is that helpful or is that less helpful? I think it is helpful. I mean, you know, there's a positive and negative to everything. Um, the only negative I can think of right now is when I ask a student to, uh, Oh, have you heard this piece? And they would say, yes. I said, who did you hear? He says, YouTube. And I said, oh, well, who was the pianist? Said, oh, I don't know. Just, and, just yeah. somebody. And, so, and then, you know, of course, there's the whole concept of instant gratification, which I never had when I was at Juilliard. I had to go to the library. I had to, you know, do research. I had to go to different locations sometimes. And so now, you know, you can see an original manuscript of Beethoven online. Mm. Um, um, you can hear performances that were really hard to get. You can hear the legal performances and the illegal ones. I mean, I, when I was at Juilliard, I'd go, you know, there was a, actually a, a store in New York that so, that specialized in all these cassettes at the time and reel-to-reels of concerts that were going on at Carnegie Hall that were recorded illegally. Black market yeah. Carnegie Hall. But, you know, I have to say to Isaac Stern's credit, I mean, to compliment what I just said, he would always leave because he was president of Carnegie Hall, a door open on the second or third level in Carnegie Hall for students to sneak in because he knew that they couldn't afford mm. tickets, you know. I mean, it's interesting. But now, of course, on, with technology, they have access to that. Um, it's really interesting from a composer's standpoint because they can put into a computer what they've composed and have it, or you know, the orchestra, all the parts printed yes. out. And you, know, you hear stories of Brahms spending... 48 hours recopying parts, you know, and transposing them into different keys. And now all you have to do is tell the computer what to do, and boom, uh, it's done. But, I, you know, I find myself using technology a lot for my own study, but also in teaching. You know, for example, a student comes in and plays a work by Mendelssohn, and I said, do you, do you realize that Mendelssohn was an incredible watercolor colorist, I mean, mm. a painter? And they said, no. And so I just Google... Mendelssohn paintings, and you get these wonderful watercolors. And you... did he ever do Fingal's Cave? Um, I don't think so. But that would be. Yeah, I better go. Google. I know he composed it, but yeah, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the work. Yeah. Let me ask you, leading into into the Beethoven, mm. this particular piece. I guess I'm I'm wondering what are the elements that you consider because when you're doing a, a master class, you'll give clues or cues to, to the student who's mm. working on it that what Beethoven may have been thinking, perhaps his period of his life mm. or, or what the rhythms are doing. When you approach this personally, mm. what have you gone through in preparation for this? Well, the preparation, you know, is an ongoing process. I mean, this is a work I've played for many years, but still every time I play it, it feels like the first time. Mm. Uh, this particular sonata uh, falls sort of in the middle of the 32 sonatas known as his middle period actually and you know beethoven was responsible for the piano builders of his time to change and make the piano more resonant larger the keyboard got wider and also the in this particular sonata the use of the pedal mm. is very effective there's one section in this first movement where um, donald francis tovey the musicologist describes this recitative is like a voice coming out of a vault. You know, it's a very sort of mysterious, spooky. And Beethoven actually writes in the score to hold the pedal through the whole section. He wanted that sound. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, he's pushing the envelope in this piece. I mean, the, 
the the piece I find is sort of like a angel surrounded by two demons. I mean, the angel being the second movement, uh, a very sort of Renaissance painting kind of angel with floating <laughs> wings, and then the outer movements are just almost unsettled to a certain degree, which makes them so compelling. The first movement is about the relationship between slow and fast and how they coexist. I mean, it's it's marked largo allegro, which means slow and fast. And in between that is this, you know, sort of very concentric story that he tells. And fortunately for us, you know, Beethoven is so detailed with every mark, every touch, every dynamic, every slur. So at the same time, if you follow those directions as an individual, you'll have your unique interpretation of the piece, which is pretty miraculous, I think. Uh, the last movement, as I mentioned before, is, is a perpetual motion that reminds me of, you know, those sort of Middle Ages, those carvings of a knight in his armor on a horse riding at twilight. You know, it's got this kind of journey to it that uh, has sort of a lasso kind of effect. But I, I love the work and I find it uh, very, very challenging and it's a, a privilege to be able to play it. Well, it's a privilege for us to hear you. We'll let you take your place okay. at the piano here. We're about to hear Sonata, Opus 31 by Beethoven, number two of that set. It's his piano sonata number 17. We get to hear all three movements as they're performed here live in Studio 6 at BYU Broadcasting by Norman Krieger.
We've just heard Beethoven's Sonata Opus 31, number two, Piano Sonata, number 17. We heard all three movements performed by our guest today, Norman Krieger. We'll give you a moment, Mr. Krieger, to catch your breath from from your performance. But you were right. That last movement, it just starts as a train that only picks up momentum. I know. It really does. It's quite a journey. (laughs) Thank you for the beautiful performance and the clarity, not only hearing the basses and the soprano, but I feel like the altos and tenors Mm. got their voices heard as well. Oh, well, thank you. I I try. It's It's, you know, a miraculous experience because... Beethoven really transformed the piano into a, an orchestra. I mean, Mozart, yes, there's that structural element and a more vocal, I would say. And Haydn certainly planted seeds in Beethoven, you know, but then Beethoven just expanded and really, this is a mini orchestra at this point in musical history. Well, I think Beethoven and Rex would both be yeah. very proud. <laughs> yeah. this. Oh. Two final questions, if you have just a moment. Uh, when we were setting up, we mentioned that this is this is live, as mm. you're used to performing live, and you said, oh, I won't worry about that, life is too short, and I thought, <laughs> I really love that attitude, but is that an attitude you've come by over time? I think so, because, you know, I've seen colleagues... Because you just seem to totally yeah. enjoy what you're doing. You know, the, the, the reality is that um, I try to practice what I preach with my students, you know, and, you know, we, we all want a certain kind of perfection, and in the modern age, you know, perfection is interpreted, you know, by many different things, you know, note perfect or uh, whatever. You know, I, I, I've just given into the fact that I'll never be a note perfect pianist, you know. It's just, there's some people that are, and, you know, God bless them. You know, it's, it's incredible, and they play musically when with passion. But I think the more you think about life and all the miracles of each day, just... You know, I'm grateful that I can get up and walk to the piano and play it because I know people, you know, I've played a lot in senior homes and in hospitals, which to me are the best concerts, the most important ones with Mm. kids with cancer. And so pianists, we we tend to take ourselves too seriously and we get myopic in our worlds, which are, we have to, to a certain degree. But then after it's done, you know, I just, my attitude is, you know, we're all human and I I have to sort of wear my my skin in in a loose garment, not spandex, you know, <laughs> but just life is too short. And um, I would rather play, actually, Beethoven was the one who said this to one of his students. He says, you know, I, you must play with passion and with feeling. It's more important than accuracy or the me- mm-hmm. mechanism aspect. So it's just who I am at this stage of my life. Um, I, uh, I, I, I figure, you know, every day is a learning experience as a performer and as a teacher and as a as just living in the world, you know. So we have to use every experience. And I, th- you know what it really comes down to? Giving up control. Hmm. I think, you know, we live in an age where you, we always want to be in some kind of control. And the reality is we're not. It's just an illusion. So if we embrace that concept and, you know, try to think of ourselves as vessels to do good, make the world a better place, music is a language. I think it's a spiritual language. And it's uh, a voice, you know, from a, a higher plane that we have the opportunity to experience. So I don't think that that, that means no perfection. I, I think it's more, it's deeper than that, you know. Mm. I would like to think, maybe some of my colleagues will knock me over the head, you know, by saying this, but I've heard a lot of note perfect performances in my life and I, I don't remember them. But then I've heard performances where people took chances and those I remember. Uh, the risks. And there is something that lets those of us who are listening take that journey. Oh, good. Part of it's the physical expression of what you're doing because because you're completely into it, not just watching your fingerings. Yeah. 
although I'm sure you don't ignore that. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think something sort of subconscious has to happen when you're performing, where you transform into, you know, like I said before, sort of a vessel, where you allow your spiritual nature, your, your physical nature, your, your inner mind to be present. And that's, that's the hardest thing to do, I think, for all of us, you know, and not be self-conscious, you know. So, but that's a process, you know. I mean, I, I wasn't always this way. I think maybe it's because of my age, I don't know. Um, when you're younger and you want to sort of conquer the world, you know, um, you're, you're aware of a lot more things. Now, my attitude is, I'm just grateful that I can play. And I'm grateful <laughs> to have the privilege of making music anywhere. One final question for you, Van. What do you still have in mind to accomplish? A piece you want to play? Oh, or my God. A, something you want to teach or what? Well, both. I mean, you know, there's so much repertoire that I haven't learned. I mean, Schubert, I really want, would like to spend the next few years devoted, devoting my time to Brahms and Schubert and new music. I really I enjoy discovering You've been the new a champion sounds. of that for years. You know, I just include it in my repertoire because I think it's important. I think, you know, living in the present is important. And um, celebrating living composers is a good thing. I mean, it's nice to be able to get on the phone and say, "Do you do you really want this staccato here or mezzo forte here?" And uh, if in some you could, case, only you could call Brahms. Right. Say. Yeah. Well, Brahms writes like po poco forte. You know. I mean, so how do you interpret that? You know. I mean, it's. A, um, but you know, in the end, I think we all know when we experience music in its raw form. Meaning, you know, Schnabel, the great pianist, said no performance will ever be as good as the way it was conceived. So we bring it to life after every during each performance, and then we have to let go of it. hope that answers your question. Yes, it yeah. does. And Norman Krieger, a pleasure to have you in honor, and thank you thank for you. playing for us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. If you're listening and you'd like to learn more, you can go online to normankrieger.com, K-R-I-E-G-E-R. If you're listening at home or caught part of the show, would like to hear the first part or hear it again, easy enough to do. Also, special thanks to Joanne Rowland and the Gina Bachauer International Piano Foundation for arranging for a beautiful show and for young Tristan. Yes. Norman's son, who's been dutifully sitting here and enjoying. All of our shows are archived online for free on-demand listening at byuradio.org slash highway89. And follow us on Twitter at BYUH for live show updates and special behind-the-scenes photos and video clips at BYUH89. Highway 89 is a production of BYU Broadcasting in Provo, Utah. Our recording engineer is Mark Waite. Our film assistant is Abby Vance. And the show's producer is Jackie Tataishi. I'm Stephen Cat Perry. Thanks for listening. <laughs>